Uh, Father, thank you for your entire word. Uh, just, I was so uh, grateful and, and mindful of what Ted said uh, this morning that so many um, of my brothers and sisters, evangelicals even, um, just are uh, a little too unfamiliar with the Old Testament and how wonderful and rich and what a, what a great picture uh, it gives us of you and then sets the stage so well for our Lord Jesus. Uh, thank you. I pray that your spirit would be here and be our teacher, be our guide. Uh, lead us and guide us into all truth. Your word is truth. And we pray that your spirit would do the teaching tonight for each one of us. And we pray for that, please, in Jesus' name. We're going to cover Genesis 1 through 11. And you say, now wait a minute, we didn't have a chance to read. Well, so here's the dilemma. If you would have come tonight and I would have said, hey, you would have said, wait a minute, I went to all this trouble to come tonight and we didn't even do the Bible. So I have to do something, right? Look at you, you're all like, yes, yes, that's why I'm here in the beginning. Okay, so we're going to do Genesis 1 through 11. From this point on, you'll see a reading assignment at the end of the slides. It's in your handouts. Next week is for Genesis 12 through 25. I will do my best to come prepared. I hope you will come prepared. (laughs) Just read the material. It'll give you a much better feel for what we're going to cover if you've had a chance to read it. Uh, You may understand a little. You may understand a lot. You may understand nothing. But we'll try to walk you through those chapters week by week. But if you'll pay attention at the end of every set of notes, which is one of the last slides we do, it'll tell you what chapters to read for next time. Okay, uh, let's see. The final thing is then, some of you um, who've been here before, uh, I've experimented with a lot of translations of the Bible, and for my public reading, I use the New Living Translation. The ESV, wonderful translation, is written at about a 10th or 11th grade level. The NLT is written at about a 6th grade level. So when I read it, you'll say, this doesn't track with the ESV. I know that. I'm telling you ahead of time. I'm using the New Living Translation just because I like the way it reads when I read it out loud. And I think you'll say, oh, that's, that's so much clearer than sometimes the ESV is a little hard to figure out because it's expecting you to use a lot more brain. And the sixth grade version is good for me because it doesn't expect me to be that smart. So we're going to use the NLT. Uh, So if you'd like to get a copy of the NLT, that's fine. If you don't want to, fine. But now you know what translation I'll be reading out of or pointing things out. Sometimes I'll ask you if someone has a certain translation because I know it might say something in a way that it's going to highlight something I might want to talk about. And so bring whatever translation you want. But I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. All right. What time is it? Oh, gee. Oh, man, we're behind already. All right, here we go. Genesis. And at every book, for every book, I'll try to give you a word or a short phrase of what I think the whole book is about. Genesis, I believe, rightly understood, is the family tree of faith. A lot of people who are a lot smarter than me think it's about something else, and that's okay. Uh, They're wrong. What it's about is the family tree of faith, and I'm going to... I'm going to set out to prove that to you uh, during the course of this. And if you agree with me, wonderful. If you don't agree with me, that's okay. Uh, Be a Berean. 
Remember that from Acts chapter 17? Remember that? Paul is teaching in Berea, and the people of Berea were said to be of more noble character because they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. So I want you to be Bereans. If you think I'm heretical, then, man, bring it to my attention. I don't think I'm heretical, uh, but you may disagree with some of the things I say. That's okay. I'm okay with that. I won't break. As long as you won't break, if we discuss that. But come on. I'd love to engage that, engage with you in that. But Genesis, the family tree of faith, ready, set, here we go. The basics, I'll try to give you a basics slide at the beginning of every book. What that means is, who wrote it? Moses wrote the entire Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote all five of those books. He wrote Genesis. So Moses wrote Genesis. Now, how did Moses write Genesis? Great question. Clearly, a lot of the events that happened that Moses is recording, especially in Genesis 1 through 11, very few people were around. Moses wrote Genesis. When did he write it? Approximately 1446 to 1406, but he wrote it Really, he wrote it in 1406. How do I know that? 1 Kings 6.1. It will be on your final, guaranteed. 1 Kings 6.1. Somebody open their Bible to 1 Kings 6.1 and read what 1 Kings 6.1 says. the author gives us a couple of anchor points for some dates in 1 Kings 6.1. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, 480 years before that was the Exodus. What was the fourth year of Solomon's reign? That'll probably also be on the final. 970 B.C., what's the fourth year? 970 minus 4 is... 966, excellent. 966, add 480. What do you get? You got calculators on your phones. I know you all do. 966 plus 480 is 1446. You'll watch Discovery. You'll watch the Nature Channel. You'll watch History Channel. And they will tell you we don't know when the Exodus was and it could have been. No, it's easy. It was in 1446 B.C., Because that's what the Bible says. It happened in 1446. From the Exodus, how long do they wander in the wilderness? Forty years. What year did Moses write the Pentateuch, or at least in its final form? 1406. How do I know that? Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3. If someone read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 5. And so he wrote them all down and he explained them to the Israelites in 1406. Why? 
So crucial. Why would Moses do this? I'm going to tell you how we got here. Because you're about to come across here and begin to fulfill God's plan and promises for you. How do we get here, Moses? Let me tell you. He begins to tell us in Genesis how we got here. Genesis, in a sense, will advance the story. So we're going to tell the story of the Old Testament. Genesis is going to take us from some time to another time. Exodus, then, keeps that timeline moving forward. Leviticus, when we get to Leviticus, it explains some things, but it doesn't move the story forward. You see why it's written the way I wrote it? The next book that takes you forward is Numbers. They're going to go take the promised land. Deuteronomy doesn't advance the story, but it's the final chapter in how did we get here? How did we get here, Moses? Let me tell you. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. How do we get here? What is Moses doing? He's tying the people and the plan and the promise of God all the way back to God's original plan for man. So he's connecting where the Israelites are. How do we get here, Moses? Let me tell you. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And so he starts in Genesis to tell us the story of what happened and how they got to this point. That's what the Pentateuch is about. How did we get here? Wow, cool. Where did he write it? On the plains of Moab. He's on this side of the Jordan River with the people of Israel. They're going to go this way. Well, from your direction, they're going to go east. So they're going to go this way. Yeah, sorry, sometimes going, they go this way. No, 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 that's backwards for you. They go this way. Okay? They're going to go across the Jordan from the plains of Moab. So they're already staged at the right place to go across. But they don't go across until Joshua. So Moses writes down Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How did we get here? To answer that question for the people of God before they establish themselves as a nation. Okay. So they're already at the place where they need to be. How did we get here? The Bible Knowledge Commentary is what I quote right here. You'll see me abbreviate it as BKC. A lot of people say, okay, Bill, I'm looking for a good commentary. Don't give me a hard one. Give me a good, it's got to have enough in it, but don't make it too hard. Bible Knowledge Commentary. If you're beginning to build a library of commentaries... Start with Bible knowledge commentary. You can find one volume or two. You can, you can pick it up for 10 bucks for the set. I mean, it's relatively inexpensive. It is good, solid stuff. So if you're beginning to build a library, get Bible knowledge commentary. You'll see it listed out here, Bible knowledge commentary or BKC. That's where it's coming from. Uh, Genesis supplies the historical basis for God's covenant with his People, because what, okay, from your direction, what do I have if I'm right here before I go over? I have a covenant. By the New Testament, yeah, it's okay to nod your head. Yeah, Bill, tracking with you, got it. In the New Testament, what do the people, who do they continue to hang their hat on? I mean, who do they want to be connected with? Moses and Abraham. Well, who's an Abraham? You're starting off in Genesis 1-1. Well, I don't know who Abraham is. You will by chapter 12. 
But in 1-1, you have no idea who Abraham is. But if you're a person of Israel, you know absolutely who Abraham is. That's why he's saying, let me tell you how we got here. In the beginning, and the whole 11 chapters is the family tree of faith to lead you to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the covenant that Abraham gets from God, and then that leads us into Egypt and exile, and God comes and rescues us. Remember all this stuff? You, you've lived all this. You get all this. We don't get all this. But they would have absolutely said, oh, how do we get here? In the beginning, and that leads us in a family tree of faith, and here we are, and there's Abraham, and there's the covenant. I get it. We're the covenant people. They brought in an understanding of what was happening in the Pentateuch that you and I, is foreign to us. Does that make sense? Oh, you can do better than that. Thank you. Preach it. Come on, I like that. Okay, how did we get here? Here's their big questions. So if you're standing right here, how did we get here, Moses? He wants to answer these big questions. How did God come to choose Abraham? You need to know that. If you're a second-generation Israelite, how did God come to choose Abraham? Genesis answers that question. How did God come to make a covenant with him? Genesis answers that question. How did God come to bring us to this promised land? God begins to answer that in Genesis. What's really important to me as a, as a covenant person of God? The land. Right? Well, how do, we get, how do we get that? Exactly where did that come from? We get the answer to that in the book of Genesis. The family tree of faith. Moses lays the family tree of faith out, linking Abraham back to Adam. That's what he's going to do. He also wants to teach him some lessons along the way. He wants them to learn the lessons of their ancestors, men and women they've never met. In fact, Moses had never met. But men and women from the past, from whom his people, God's people, could learn lessons Every lesson, so I'm walking through this one in laborious detail so you understand the format. Every lesson, I'll give you a big idea of what the passage is about. Here's the big idea, spiritual idea of Genesis 1 through 11. And that is, obeying God's word is the key to usefulness, fruitfulness, and blessing. That was true in whatever year Genesis, was, in whatever year Genesis happened, and it's true today. Obeying God's word is the key to usefulness, fruitfulness, and blessing. And if you've read Genesis before, once or twice or five times or more, you go, oh my gosh, that's exactly what, that's exactly what the Genesis lessons are about. Obeying God's word is the key to usefulness, fruitfulness, and blessing. As even what Ted touched on this morning in Malachi 3. Wow, obeying God's word is the key to usefulness, fruitfulness, and blessing. That's the lesson, big lesson, from Genesis 1 through 11. How do I know this? Easy. Moses gave us chapter headings. In your handouts, on about page 4, 3 or 4, there it is, the bottom of page 3. I gave you a little book chart. This is my understanding of how the book of Genesis breaks, breaks up or breaks down. The key word that you're looking for is the word 
toledot. Now that's a Hebrew word, toledot. If you've read Genesis before, this is one of those phrases you kind of went, huh, why is that phrase there? I guess it's just a a weird phrase. Actually, that's the chapter heading that you need to be seeing. Genesis will then fall open in front of you once you get the chapter headings in the right places. You need, it, it's usually translated as this is the account of or something like that. I want you to think about it in, in a more colloquial way and paraphrase it as whatever became of or whatever happened to. Whatever became of or whatever happened to. And watch, you're going to see what's going to happen just when we go through 1 through 11. The first section, how does Genesis 1 start off? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you're Carl Sagan, I hope he trusted Christ somewhere, but if he didn't, he now knows the truth, which I hate for him. But he would say, the Bible is full of errors, including there are two creation accounts, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2. I'm sorry, Dr. Sagan, you did not understand what Moses was trying to do. Because if you would have understood it, you would see exactly why it's laid out the way it's laid out. And you would have said, oh my goodness, (laughs) it's like one story. It's like someone knew what they were doing when they wrote this down. Is that crazy? Yes, it is. (laughs) The first section begins with a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the summary statement for chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's also the summary statement for the book of Genesis. Now, what does this mean? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm going to say some things that I hope you'll understand. Okay, Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. What does Hebrews 11, 3 say? I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready to run. See, that's what I'm doing. Because <laughs> you're going to be like, what? By the way, there's a former elder in the back, and so he knows all about my heresy. Um, okay? So in case you go, ah, do the elders know he's teaching that? Yes. <laughs> yes. What does Hebrews 11.3 tell us about the universe, the heavens and the earth and everything in them? God created them ex nihilo. There was nothing there, and God created them from nothing That's what Hebrews 11.3 says. That's not what Genesis 1.1 says. Okay? You okay so far? Nobody's freaking out yet? All right. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He sovereignly creates. Here's what he's communicating. He has sovereignly, he, Yahweh, God, has created the habitations of all other Old Testament deities. I have created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. What did the Canaanites worship? Or who? Baal. What was he in charge of? Rain. God says, you know, done that. I got the house that guy lives in. I built the house that guy supposedly lives in. Every deity that these people that the Israelites are going to face, God says, I created everything they are supposedly in charge of. I'm the guy, not them. Don't get sidetracked, Israel. I am the God who created these. He's not really trying to tell us 
that he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, ex nihilo, in Genesis 1.1. He does tell us that in Hebrews 11.3. It is a true statement. God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, ex nihilo. But sometimes we need to understand the limitations of what we're reading. Does that make sense? Some people you talk to know these things. And if you say other things, they go, nope. You got nothing to share with me. So to be aware of what other people know, what's out there, this is a true statement. God did create everything ex nihilo, no doubt about it in my mind. But Genesis 1 is not trying to tell us that. Moses is trying to connect us back to God and his purposes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Summary statement. Verse 2. Here's where it would help if you knew Hebrew. Anyone have a 1986 version, New American Standard? New American Standard Bible. Please read Genesis 1-2, particularly just the first two or three words. Okay, what's the first word? Is that in anybody else's translation? Most of your translations start off with the, right? ESV says the. New Living Translation says the earth was formless and empty or formless and void. What the New American Standard rightly tried to do in the 1986 version, they abandoned it in the 1995 version, they abandoned it in the 1995 version, is they're trying to show you that in Hebrew there's a circumstantial clause for verse 2. What you need to understand is that you could put an and or a now, or a when. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is what Moses is writing. Now, the earth is formless and void. When we come on the scene in Genesis 1-1, what already exists? The earth. Now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Summary statement. Now, the earth was formless and void. What are we looking at right now? The earth. Whoa, it's already there. It got created some earlier time. And there it sits. What's its condition? Formless and void. Formless and void in the Old Testament usually mean something has desecrated the land, it's empty, and it's come under judgment. God does not create things that are formless and void. He creates things that are good. This is not good, what we find. When we come upon the earth, it is formless and void. This is not the way God made it. If you're listening to this for the very first time, if you're Moses, you're listening as a second-generation person, you're going, ooh, this is not good. The earth was not inhabitable for mankind, for God's people. This is not good. Question, why might the earth be formless and void? Remember, formless and void usually are words about desecration, emptiness, and judgment. I gave you some Bible passages there. You can go look those up and and verify what I'm saying. Why might the earth be formless and void? Answer, there was a rebellion in the angelic realm. 
Remember this? And you're like, where does this fit? I don't know exactly. I know it has to be before Genesis 3. Anywhere in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 3, it could fit. But it fits best, in my opinion, right here. There is a rebellion in the angelic realm. God created an angelic realm before he created the earth. Yes, he did. How do we know that? Because the angels sang at the creation of the earth. See Job 38, verse 7. The angels sang at God's creation. Who's already on the scene before the heavens and the earth get made? The angels. What do angels do? They have ranks and roles. We learn from Ephesians. They're ministers, messengers, and servants of God. And they're also placed there to worship God. Remember Isaiah 6? Some of them fly around, you know, they cover their, their stuff. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy. I mean, they fly around. Their job is to worship God 24-7, 365. That's their job. They delight to do it, and they never tire of it. That's what angels do. Angels were created to recognize and to submit to God's authority. Problem. One angel rebels and takes others with him. Isaiah and Ezekiel tell us about Lucifer, his pride, his subjects, those show up or were told about them in Revelation 12, but we knew he had some. His warfare is Ephesians 6. What did he do? He challenged God's sovereignty and worship. He challenged God's sovereignty. Remember, it says, I will ascend and become like the Most High. Now, God was challenged, but never threatened. Okay? God was challenged by Lucifer, but never threatened. You need to remember that. There is not yin and yang in the Christian worldview. There is God, who controls everything and does everything according to his power, glory, good pleasure, etc., He is challenged, but he is never threatened by any of this stuff. But Lucifer rebels and takes a bunch of angels with him, it seems. Perhaps, where does God put him? Onto a ball called the earth, making it formless and void, desecrating it and putting it under judgment. Perhaps Lucifer and his angels, known as demons, are the ones who are running around on the earth right now. Could you believe that? Out of the entire universe, what is the stadium that God has chosen to meet this challenge? You're on it. Guess what the whole study of end times is about? God saying, I was challenged, never threatened, but I was challenged, and here's how I meet that challenge. And that's why as you get to the study of the book of the Revelation, you see how God meets the challenge. Who wins in the end? And it's, how does he finally, how does the Lord finally overthrow Satan and everyone associated with him at the very end? With a word. God has been challenged, but he's never been threatened. 
And at the very end, I don't know what he says. It doesn't tell us what he says. Maybe he says finished. He said it once. Maybe he's going to say it again. I don't know. But with one word, the Lord Jesus puts every bit of this thing to bed forever. This ball, people are going to go look on Mars for life. They're going to go, you know what? Wonderful. Guess what they're going to find? Bupkis. Because the heavens and earth and everything in them are right here. This is the stadium in the entire universe where God is putting himself on display for who he truly is. This place is an amazing place, spiritually speaking. Angels were created to recognize and to submit to God's authority. Lucifer rebels with his demons God says, Bill's opinion, God consigns them to the earth. This is your sphere that you can operate in. And what does Jesus call him? Well, what does Paul call him? Okay, ruler of the power of the air, ruler of the kingdom, ruler of the sphere of the air. Right, remember this? You've read some New Testament? I hear there's a New Testament too. Gosh, crazy. Are you asleep yet? Okay. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What is that kingdom? This earth. Who is the ruler of this kingdom? Satan. But there's another kingdom that's coming up, right? That's also running alongside this one. And that's the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus says we can't pull it up yet. Because we might accidentally pull... You know, one of these weeds and these tares look so close, we're going to separate it at the end. But these two things are going to run along next to each other until I come and resolve this problem. Everything we do is part of a spiritual conflict. Your work, your home, everything. Because guess who's watching what's going on? The angels who didn't rebel. And you say... You are kidding me. I am not. You read Ephesians. What's the one thing the angels never got to see before Jesus came? God's grace. They saw him face to face. People say, well, does Lucifer get another chance? Now that he's seen Jesus, can he trust Jesus? Nope. Why? That seems one-sided of God. Lucifer stood in his presence and saw God exactly And God says, you had your chance, you and the other demons. You already saw who I am, and what you saw, you rejected. We don't even see him, right? We've heard, we we get to hear eyewitness accounts. And remember what Peter writes? Though you have not seen him, you love him. For those who love the Lord and his appearing, God and the angels go, my goodness, they haven't even seen him. And they believe him. (sighs) Who are you, Lord, who would do this for these little ants? We're less than ants to God. Stop it. Preaching. Okay. God's judgment. So Lucifer, Satan, and his demons are consigned to the kingdom of the air, to the earth. So what condition is it now? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. True statement. Now. The earth is formless and void. Why? Probably because it's been spiritually desecrated. 
What does it need before God can put man in it? It needs work. So what does he do? He gets to work. He rolls up his sleeve, and what's the first thing he puts in place? Why would he do that? Because he is light. And what's he going to do? I'm separating the light from the darkness. And what does John talk about? Light has come into the world, but the darkness has not understood it. First thing that happens, God says, there's good, there's evil, there's me, and there's others. Is it also light, of course? But what in the world is going on? God begins to form and fill. Why? He's preparing a place for Adam and for people who will do his will. Because he's going to use human beings to prove to the angels that his judgment of them was just and correct. And we who do not see him and yet love him and believe what he has done for us and love him for it, the angels say, this is amazing. If these little ants who've never seen you will love you and trust you, like these people who saw you face, these angels who saw you face to face and yet rebelled, blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, your judgment is right. It is just and true and correct. And what you've done to them is right. And then you know what he does to us in the book of Hebrews? Oh my gosh, I mean, this is a mind blower. And this is also what, you, what has happened to you because you are in Christ. It's not because of you. It's because we are in Christ. He is going to take, right now the angels are better, stronger, smarter than us in every single way. We're down here. Here's God. Here's the angels. Here's us. Because of Christ, this is going to be flipped. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when the church is arguing and discussing you know, about lawsuits and stuff, and he goes, do you not know that we will judge angels? And you've just read over that, and you go, what? That's weird. And you keep going. I know you. I know what you do. And you say, what? What does that mean? I don't know. I think it means we're going to judge angels, though. Is that a crazy thought to you? Should be. This is what God is preparing you for. This life here on earth, he's preparing you for what comes next, of which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor mind imagined or comprehended. What he has in store for those he loves and who love him. Unbelievable what we're being told in this first chapter, this first little section. The earth is in need of work, so God sovereignly steps in and makes a very good place for mankind. I'm going to tie John 1 together for you. You've read John 1 and you've had thoughts. Hmm, this sure sounds like creation language. Why might John use creation language? Because it seems what God is doing is he's invading Satan's territory, redeeming what had formerly become corrupt in Genesis 1. Why would John pick up on that theme? Oh, I don't know. Why would he? Can you imagine why from John 1? In the beginning was the word, words with God, words with God, right? What is John 1? 
God coming into, in the person of Jesus Christ, he steps into the earth. Who is the earth held by? Who steps into it? Just like his dad. He steps into it. And what does he do? He redeems. Just like his dad did. He does everything just as his dad did. Is this amazing? Yes, it's amazing. What else does God do in this first little section of Genesis? He forms and fills with new life what was formerly formless and void, now making it fit for his purposes. What's he doing? He's preparing a place for Adam. And so God forms it and fills it with new life. What was formerly desecrated, under judgment, corrupt, and he now makes it fit for his purposes. Not only that, but he adds life that wasn't there before. How does he create man? In his image and likeness, with a mind to know him, the emotional capacity to love him, a will to obey him, and with a purpose. To revere him, to reveal him to other people, including the angels, and to rule in his place. A mind, an emotional capacity, a will, and a purpose. Oh, gosh, this is so crazy. Okay, so these days... Um, so I grew up in the days of four spiritual laws. You know four spiritual laws? Okay. They say these days the four spiritual laws way of talking to people about Christ is gone and dead. And you go, what? It's truth. Nobody believes in God and nobody believes in hell and nobody believes in heaven. Why talk to me about those things? I don't believe them believe in them and they don't exist. You know where they are telling us we can start? Purpose. Why did Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren sell one bazillion copies? Because the one thing materialism cannot buy is purpose. And our country is dying for purpose, spiritual purpose. And we as Christians have it, praise the Lord. You know what they're most hungry for? Purpose. So these days, rather than starting with heaven and hell, which are true things, not in their minds, but they're true things, but don't, don't get there yet, talk about purpose. What purpose do you have in Christ that they may not have? And how is that satisfying? And how does that bring you joy? And how does that make a difference in your life? What's the purpose that you have? You can roll out of bed every morning saying, I have purpose our neighbors who live across the street or on the side of us or in back of us, most of them do not have that kind of purpose. They believe it has to be out there, but they don't know where it is or who has it. And so they're on a quest to find it. So I just say to you, you know what? Consider that. Maybe they are right. And instead of starting in this one place that we've always started, maybe we need to start in a different place and start talking about purpose and see where that goes. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, it may not make any sense to you, but that's what they are saying. Okay. God not only remakes, but he adds what wasn't there before. He does all this through the sovereign agencies of his word and his spirit. Anybody connecting with John 1 yet? 
What do we have in John chapter 1? The Word and the Spirit. We've got God in the person of Jesus stepping into Satan's territory and redeeming it. And not only does he redeem it, in other words, does he undo the desecration, all of that kind of thing, but he fills it with new life, his life that was never there before, right? I didn't, God's life was not hidden in me. It wasn't there. So God not only stepped into my formless and void, but he put new life into it where there wasn't life before. Genesis 1, John 1. Oh my gosh. Are you asleep? You need my coffee? This, oh, this is so fun. Okay, you'll think about this. It's going to hit you tonight. It's going to wake you up and you're going to go, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. Point, Adam stands ready to fulfill God's purposes. Finally, Adam shows up on the scene and he's ready now. He has a place to live. He has a place to, uh, to meet with God and he's ready to go. Okay. Well, then what happens in Genesis 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 4? What does it say? What does it say in your Bible? This is the account of... Why would we talk about the account of the heavens and the earth? Because we had a summary statement in chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, chapter 2, whatever became of the heavens and the earth? Moses says, let me tell you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Whatever happened to the heavens and the earth? Chapter 2 through chapter 4. Let me tell you what happened. Bad news. You see, where, you see how Moses is laying this out? It's just a story. And he's going from one thing to another. He sets himself up, and then he, he goes on to chapter 2. Whatever became of the heavens and the earth? Adam starts well, but evil is afoot. Frankly, Adam didn't know what he was up against. Eve, deceived by Satan, ate. Adam ate too. They didn't trust God's character. They disobeyed God's word. And they fell, so to speak, into spiritual death. And everything now groans under judgment and conflict. Sin has entered the human race, brought disobedience, disease, decay, and death. That wasn't what God wanted in the beginning. That's our lot. Adam didn't know what he was up against. But God steps in. By the way, what chapter are we in in Genesis? We're not very far into this thing called the Bible yet, are we? And already God is showing us his character. He steps in and redeems. God sought out Adam and likely Eve. He did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. He removed their sin. He restored their fellowship with him. He taught them a valuable lesson. It takes blood on the altar to have fellowship with God. That's why he slayed at least one, if not more, animals to show them what he's going to teach them later on in Leviticus. He's showing them right now. Sin is bad and has a very, very steep price connected with it. And he gave them his promise of hope that one day this would change. 
So whatever became of the heavens and the earth? Sin entered the human race and brought disobedience, disease, decay, and death. How does chapter 5, verse 1 start? How does chapter 4 end? Adam and Eve, right? God has reconciled them to himself. So who's, who's front and center at the end of chapter 4? Adam and Eve. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now this is the account of? Is, you see what's happening? Do you see how Moses is laying this out? Well, there's Adam. Whatever happened to Adam? Let me tell you what happened to Adam. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, 8. Whatever happened to Adam? Mankind becomes corrupt through sin and then through civilizations of his own creation. He tries to fill the void of relationship with God with other things. And two lines emerge from Adam. We could spend days and days and days on chapter 6 on the sons of God and the daughters of men. But we're not going to do that. Because I believe if you'll take it in the context in which it's portrayed in Genesis, there are two lines of people who are being described here. I'm not saying that they couldn't, the, the uh, bad guys could not have been demon-possessed. They could have been. And that could be the point. That things are so bad that demons are possessing people all the time. But two lines, the point of this whole chapter is two lines are beginning to emerge. Same as Jesus talking about the wheat and the tares. Two lines are beginning to emerge side by side. One line, the line of Cain is the line dedicated to society and culture and music and weapons. And then there's a Lamech who shows up. They're wicked. They delight in playing God, and they are the sons of men. There's another line emerging, the line of Seth. These are pilgrims on the earth. There's an Enoch. Was that a crazy story? You've read Enoch before, right? How old was Enoch when he had his first child? That's right, 65. Good. 65, then Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. People can, well, they accuse churches of a lot of things. There are some denominations who would look at us, a Bible church, and say, you guys are fools to believe in the rapture. I go, have you ever read Genesis? And they say, what are you talking about? I said, explain Enoch. Well, what do you mean? Why do they not know what I mean? Because they've never read it. Or at least they read over it real quickly. What happened to Enoch? He was raptured. Enoch was raptured. And you say, oh, Bill, that's crazy talk. Stop. By the time we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, who else is raptured in the sense they're pulled out of judgment before it falls? Who else? Lot. We have two wonderful pictures of the rapture in the first half of Genesis. We haven't even gotten to the New Testament yet. This idea of a rapture is not new. We didn't make it up. We're just reading the Bible. Who goes through the judgment? Noah in an ark, right? God will provide a way for his people to be carried through the judgment. But he chooses to rapture others who walk with him. Crazy. Okay, here we go. Enoch's rapture. There's also a Lamech in the same generation. See how closely these things look, these kingdoms? They're even naming their kids the same thing. You're supposed to hear this, these two lines, and go, whoa, my gosh. This one is imitating the other one. 
gosh, that sounds New Testament, doesn't it? The kingdom of darkness is imitating the kingdom of light. What do we, see, what do we learn at the end of chapter, is at the end of chapter 4 about the line of Seth? It was at this time that men first began to call on the name of the Lord. Seth is the, the line of faith, the family tree of faith. Who isn't Cain? Whatever became of the heavens and the earth, whatever became of Adam, whatever became of Noah, Enoch and Noah. Enoch we learn from Jude 14 and 15 and Noah from 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. Enoch and Noah are running around at the same time preaching. Why is that important? Deuteronomy 19.15. There is no condemnation except for the testimony of two witnesses. Remember, that's even true in Jesus' day. They can't get two witnesses to agree on what Jesus said or did. Two witnesses. God provided two witnesses before he judged the earth. He provided Enoch, and he took him. And then he provided Noah. How long did Noah preach? 120 years. He's under God's shield. God said, my spirit will not contend. It's really probably best translated as my spirit will not shield mankind longer than 120 years. Why? Because Noah's building the boat. And people say, well, that's crazy. No guy could build a boat. I'm going to suggest something to you. Adam and Eve were perfect. That's how God created them. Noah was a lot smarter than you and me. Do you know what's happened after several millennia of inbreeding? We have to ascribe aliens to come build pyramids because man is too stupid. Remember? We've just left the bone and the, we, we kind of look like a gorilla or something and there's no way we could have built a pyramid. So aliens must have invaded and built the pyramids for us and taught us how to do it. No, what if these people were way smarter than we were and the gene pool has just become more and more corrupt as we've gone on in history? That's the truth. Why are we all falling apart now? People have always fallen apart, but why are we falling apart at such a much faster, higher rate? Because the gene pool has become increasingly corrupt. See what I'm saying? You don't have to agree with it, but that, sorry. Noah's family is preserved from judgment in the ark, a picture of God preserving his people through judgment. But he has also taken some away before the judgment came, and that's in your handout. There you go. So I had an engineer in one of the very first classes I did, and since we didn't ever say when Genesis 1-1 occurred, uh, he took it from zero, and he plotted all of the uh, lifespans and when the next kid was born from Genesis. And then he puts the date of the flood in there, and you can see when Enoch was taken, and then you can see when the flood came and when Noah and his family were spared, were preserved from judgment in there. It's pretty interesting. Methuselah dies just before the flood, it would seem. Very, very close to the flood. Look at Noah. Look at who Noah knew. How far down the family tree of faith, sorry, Noah, I meant Adam. Look at how far down the family tree of faith Adam would have how many kids he would have known? Grandkids, great, great, great kids. I mean, on and on and on. 
Unbelievable. Great, 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 great granddad. Could you tell us a story about when you walked with God? <laughs> I can. What? <laughs> this is crazy. So right up until the flood, they knew from a first-hand account what had happened in the beginning. Amazing. Oh, some, okay. Oh, gosh, we're so... That's why I said we'll go till about 7.30, because sometimes it's... <laughs> I just got a little more here. Whatever happened to Noah? Whatever happened to Shem, Ham, and Japheth? So Noah has three kids, right? They go through, the bird comes out, they land, blah, 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 blah. Noah gets drunk. Two kids walk in backwards with a sheet. What has Ham done? Ham has come in and said, <laughs> look at Dad. He's drunk. That's not a good thing. What did Ham get as a result of that? A curse. What did Shem get out of this? A blessing. Family tree of faith. Coming through the line of Adam, through the line of Noah, through the line of Shem. He's just laying out for us the family tree of faith. Why is any of that important? Well, in the next chart, you can see where the tribes located. Take just a second and look at the oblong thing where it says descendants of Ham. Notice all those little oblongs. Egypt, Philistines, Canaan, Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, way up top. Who are all these people? Israel's enemies. What descended from the line of Ham? Israel's enemies. Bad news. Whatever became of the heavens and the earth that God created, sin came in and it messed everything up. Well, whatever happened to Adam? Oh, my gosh. Adam had kids and other stuff happened. Well, what happened to Noah? Well, no, God preserved Noah through this big flood. God cleansed the earth. He said, I'm done with you. Oh, this is so crazy. I've got to tell you this, too. Okay. If Noah preaches for 120 years, and you haven't read 1 through 11 recently, but it says that the flood occurred when Noah was 600. When did Noah start preaching? How old was Noah? 480. When was his first child born? When he was 500. And what did God tell him when he was 500? I'm going to cause it to rain. Huh. What's rain? He had never heard of rain before. And by, and by the way, Noah, I'm going to preserve you and your whole family on the boat. <laughs> Great, Lord. <laughs> you're going to make it rain. I don't even know what you're talking about. And I'm going to have a family. Yes. It's going to happen in the next 20 years. What? Noah goes, gotcha. I'm on it. I'll start building the boat. Noah is an amazing, <laughs> amazing guy. What he knew about God would fit on a post-it note. And he says, I'm going to bring judgment through rain. Uh-huh. And you're going to have a family. I got a wife. <laughs> I guess I'm going to have a family too. The faith that Noah had was unbelievable. And by his faith, he condemned that entire generation across the world. Whatever became of Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Well, they divided up and they went all over the place. And so why do we finish chapter 11 on Shem? Because we're on the family tree of faith. We're tracking, we're tracing that uh, branch of faith. So we learn about Shem. What's the point of Shem? We learn that his, he is the ancestor of Terah, the father of Abraham. Because by chapter 12 of Genesis, we've gotten to a key figure. 
How did we get here? We got a covenant through Abraham. Who's Abraham? Let me tell you how we got to Abraham. All of 1 through 11 has led up to Abraham. And so Shem, the line of faith, has led us. He is an ancestor of Abraham. Chapter 12 of Genesis, Abraham comes on the scene. And we meet Abraham, and we see what God does with Abraham. And that's the point for your next week's assignment. Okay, so we learn that Shem is the ancestor of Terah, the father of Abraham. Abraham is connected in the family tree of faith all the way back to Adam. How did we get here? Well, in the beginning, this is what happened. And two lines, a faithful line and an unfaithful line, began to emerge. And God even started over once. And this unfaithful line and this faithful line continued. And Abraham comes out of the faithful line. And that becomes increasingly important to the people called Israel in the future. Obeying God's word is the key to usefulness, fruitfulness, and blessing. Let me try to give you some applications on that big idea. First, do you ever walk in Adam's footsteps? He's walked with God. He knows what's expected of him, but he allows others to persuade him to compromise, including his own wife. Do you ever walk in Noah's footsteps? He's a righteous man. He takes God at his word and he obeys, but he lacks self-control over his fleshly appetites. Were you ever like Adam? Are you ever like Noah? If so, you have a wonderful God and you've seen how he's dealt with your, in a sense, prototype before. And he steps in redemptively, kindly, compassionately, etc. We have a wonderful redeeming God. But obeying God's word is the key to usefulness, fruitfulness, and blessing from God. From Genesis 1 through 11. For next time, read Genesis 12 through 25. It's the story of Abraham. Read the story of Abraham. Genesis 12 through 25. Let me pray for us. And we'll be finished for tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the faithfulness um, of these people to you. But first and foremost, thank you for your love and faithfulness uh, to us, and to your people uh, you stepped in and redeemed them when they did not deserve it. Uh, you made a way for them to be reconciled to you, to walk with you, to have fellowship with you. Um, you, you did that from so early on in the Bible. Uh, we understand that it took blood on the altar uh, to have a relationship with you. And so how we thank you, even tonight again, for our wonderful Lord Jesus, who laid his own life down, who shed his blood as we celebrated this morning in communion. It's because of him that we have fellowship and reconciliation and justification with you. I thank you for your great work on our behalf. Uh, continue to draw us close to yourself. We want to walk uh, with you in a way that um, is honoring to you, uh, that pleases you um, in all uh, forms and facets. And we pray uh, toward this end, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.